This is Purple Hall. of Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. With us today is Dr. Daniel Green, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. He served as Defense Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He has authored or co-authored three books, including The Valley's Edge, A Year with the Pashtuns in the Heartland of the Taliban, Fallujah Redux, The Anbar Awakening and the Struggle with Al-Qaeda, and In the Warlord's Shadow, Special Operations Forces, the Afghans and their Fight Against the Taliban. Dr. Green has written over 55 journal articles, op-eds, and policy analyses. Actually, I think that's closer to 60 now. Uh, Dr. Green is also is a reserve officer with the United States Navy, a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation Inherent Resolve. He is a recipient of the U.S. Department of State Superior Honor Award, the U.S. Army Superior Civilian Honor Award, and the Office of Secretary of Defense's Exceptional Public Service Award. Dr. Green earned his bachelor's degree in political science from American University, a bachelor's degree in history and uh, CLEG, CLEG, Communications Legal Institutions, Economics and Government from American, and a master's degree in international affairs from Florida State University. He received his PhD in, in an MPhil in political science from George Washington University and so much more. Dan, mm. welcome to Preble Hall. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. You, you've been here before. You spoke here Probably, was that for Fallujah Redux, yeah. I think? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it was good. It was very, very kind for you to invite me. I'm doing very well. No, it's, uh, it's Sold in the hundreds, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to have you back. And, uh, you know, we've been talking, I think, for the past hour or something, just as we sat down and said, okay, let's get going. I probably should have hit record at some point. Uh, but we're really here to talk about your latest book, Front Toward Enemy, War, Veterans, and the Home Front. So as, as we set the stage for this, I'd really like to talk about your career in the U.S. Navy Reserve. You were, you were not commissioned from the Naval Academy or, or ROTC. You were a direct commission, right? I was, yes. Can you explain to our audience what a direct commission officer was? Sure, it's- sure. I appreciate it. Um, just before I say, answer your question, just, these are my personal views and not those of the U.S. Navy, U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, so I'm certainly uh, accountable for whatever I say. Uh, yes, the direct commission program, is, I think, as you know well, is designed by the Navy as a way to sort of bring in people of um, unique skill sets and talents and experiences uh, to the Navy quickly. Um, Often they have intelligence officers, they have uh, engineers, doctors, uh, lawyers, um, nurses, religious leaders, others uh, who have unique skill sets. And it's a way of bringing them in in uh, quickly without a lot of this sort of greater sort of burdens, if you will, of OCS or the Naval Academy. And, and, and in light of that, they understand that you're kind of very new to the Navy. And so they, they put you for a, almost a kind of a two-year training pipeline, one week in a month, two weeks a year, uh, and some other training you have to undertake. And then after that, you can then conceivably mobilize or serve uh, abroad if, if required or even here at home. But um, that's kind of the way they do it. And um, uh, others will may perhaps chuckle, but that's a onerous application process of five or six pages, some letters of recommendation, you know, through your security clearance application, and I think an essay on what you would contribute to the Navy. And there's a local board interview, and um, based on that, you know, you get kind of the yay or nay, and it goes up to the national board, and they they weigh in. And 
I was fortunate uh, to get selected in June of 03 and get sworn in that, that same month. So been, it's been great and uh, been a wonderful experience. No, it's it, it, the the quality I've always found, you know, over the past 22 years of my service, and I was a DCO as well, mm. and I sat in on a DCO board earlier this year, and just, you're right, the quality of, of folks coming in or applying is, is really amazing. Uh, tell us about your service. I mean, I don't think people mm. realize, number one, that the Navy was so involved with Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, the you know it, when people the, the general public think about Iraq Afghanistan, they think Army, right? Uh, but let's let's hone in on Navy as a Navy reservist. What did you do mm-hmm. during the past twenty years? And you're deploy- you have multiple deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that. I uh, well, you know, just to, to begin at the beginning. I actually was at the Pentagon on 9/11 when it when the plane struck the building, and I've had uh, some prior colleagues uh, who were killed on that day. And so for me, uh, the Navy was the greatest way to get in quickly and uh, conceivably you know, contribute in some manner. Um, so I initially, uh, because it was the Navy, I thought that would be the way to do it. But then I, as one gets in, one learns the challenges of actually getting over there. And uh, so I eventually uh, volunteered for Afghanistan with the State Department. Uh, and I asked, said, hey, send me to the worst province. You need someone. And they're like, really? I was like, yeah. I mean, that's, I'm here. I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> you know, I'm here to do what's required. And I did a year in uh, southern Afghanistan, a province called Aruzgan. And then from that, that's when my sort of Navy Reserve deploying experiences began. I have mobilized four times for Iraq and Afghanistan, twice to Iraq, twice to Afghanistan. And uh, just coming back in Afghanistan from the State Department tour, I was there 05, 06. I went straight into uh, training a pipeline and uh, volunteered and was sent over to Fallujah, Iraq. I was attached to a SEAL team, ostensibly to be an intelligence officer, but because of the uh, AMBAR awakening period um, and the fact I had worked with state the State Department, I had worked with tribal leaders and local political leaders in Afghanistan, the SEALs thought I'd be well-suited to kind of do similar work in Fallujah. So I, was, uh, I replaced a SEAL who was a chief who spoke fluent Arabic, and I kind of became the, the go-to person in Fallujah with the mayor of Fallujah City Council and the local tribes and tribal leaders for the SEAL task element that was assigned there. And then from there, I did that tour, and then I uh, really wanted to go to Afghanistan in uniform, so I volunteered again, and I went there in 09, 2010, worked at ISAF Joint Command uh, in Kabul, three-star commands. I tell you, uh, 06 is at three-star commands, aren't well-regarded, so you can imagine we were, I like to say, a senior 03. Um, <laughs> no one pays you much mind, but I, I worked there as a liaison to the U.S. Embassy. And then I had a chance to go back to the same province I had served in seven years previously. And I volunteered again and went to Afghanistan, Ruzgan province. Literally, it's the same part of the base I had lived in seven years before. And I was attached to another SEAL team. And I was you know, asked to go as the tribal political advisor. Uh, I had written a book on the province, so I knew the province intimately. And uh, so I did that tour. I thought that was good. I was done. And then uh, ISIS took Iraq and... As many of people who listen to this know, you start having friends go over there, and they see opportunities. And so I, I had served with a Marine Lieutenant Colonel in Fallujah who was in charge of the city. Uh, he and I had co-written a book called Fallujah Redux about our time together. And uh, as luck would have it, he got promoted to one star, and, and he said, hey, we need help working with the tribes again in western Iraq, and Anbar in particular. Would you be interested in going? He said, yeah, happy to go. So I mobilized again and then served in Baghdad, 15, 16 
in part reinventing the wheel. There's very little corporate memory when it comes to our relationships with locals. And I would write very detailed analyses of, frankly, the U.S. experience in every single town of Ambar and every and the whole history. I mean, you, you would want to know and the histories of the tribes. I literally had copies of the British intelligence reports from World War One. I, I brought with me. So I was using those. I had memoirs of, I had the memoir of the British general who'd put down the uh, insurrection in 1920. But I also knew where all the Marines, Marine reports had been logged on other computer systems. And I had several of the memoirs of vets who'd served in Amor. So I would draw from these things and then uh, write up these reports in terms of who should we talk to? What are the problems we're getting involved in? Like we're talking to the wrong faction of a tribe versus another, these little details. So that was my last mobilization. And, uh, you know, for the Navy, as many people may know, um, historically we're considered the strategic reserve. So if big nation-state war happens, we, we, we would volunteer or be called up. Uh, and then because of how long the wars were in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the Navy under Admiral uh, Mullen as CNO really volunteered to uh, have us be more operational reserves. And so mm-hmm. uh, people say, oh, what's it like in the Navy? Or what are, have you, how many ships you've been on? Like, well, I've had the half-day ship orientation one goes through through direct commission officer training. Other than that, and a couple of classic just sort of get to walk on them when they're at pier side, all I know really are Iraq and Afghanistan and then now Yemen and uh, on the ground stuff. Um, so they say jokingly that we're part of the NARMY, you know, Navy Army. So uh, that's been my experience. What did you do in uh, in Yemen? Yemen, I was not there with the Navy. I was there with a state, or not state, I went with a think tank. I got a research grant uh, to study local governance in Yemen. Uh, because and this is right before we pulled out of the embassy, right? Yes, right. You uh, must have been one of the last people out of there. I, I, I would love that to months. dramatically be true, but it's not true. But uh, <laughs> would be very In the close. last few months, I should say. That's even probably more. Really? Well, maybe. It was okay, the fall yeah. of 2013. Yeah. Uh, but they, you're correct. They, they left in 2014, I believe, if I remember correctly. But I was interested in local governance because, um, because of my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, I often saw insurgencies... Uh, take advantage of our lack of understanding of local political situations mm-hmm. and tribes. But also I saw that this was easier for them because the institutions of local governance were very immature, but they also were de- in many ways designed to fail. They were All the pieces and parts are there that we as Americans would recognize. Mm-hmm. Okay, they've got a governor, they've got a provincial council, they have directors of health and education. But as you scratch the surface, you realize, well, the governor's appointed by the central government. The provincial council members... Yes, they are elected locally, which is great, but they have no oversight over the directorates that they ostensibly should have some oversight on. Uh, and all the directors are appointed by the central government. The provincial chief of police is not appointed by the governor. He's appointed by the central government. So it was an overly unified, overly centralized system, and I saw that these insurgencies were able to exploit this disconnect between um, accountability and responsibility You know that, that existed. Let's go back to... Uh point you made about reservists especially uh, but even active duty had such an abbreviated time in theater uh, especially from an intelligence perspective that you would lose that that information very quickly i mean you do you you we've both done it we've done turnover quickly you know quickly over a couple weeks maybe if you have that Mm um jim gant uh captain jim gant wrote one tribe at a time Mm -hmm in which he suggested that you really need to have long-term embedded forces with local tribes. 
Do you think, upon reflection, that mm-hmm. would have been a better tack with what, what we did either in Afghanistan or, or in Iraq? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a famous quote from a, a guy named John Paul Van from the Vietnam War, and I don't think it's quoted in the book Bright Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan, which won the Pulitzer Prize, but it's attributed to him. Essentially, we weren't in Vietnam 10 years. We were there one year 10 times, right? I often make the, uh, a corollary to that. I said, you know, the Taliban are still on their first tour. <laughs> it's a hell of a tour. Their detailer must not like them. Um, but imagine that perspective. You operate completely differently. And if you look at the British uh, colonial experience, they literally had a separate colonial office to deal with the colonies. And they had a foreign, a foreign office, foreign ministry. They dealt with sort of mature nation states differently than they dealt with their colonial uh, you know, uh, possessions. And you need to fight the strategy of, the, of our opponents as it is, not as we wish it to, as we wish it to be. You know, and a lot of the last 20 years is about pulling a reluctant bureaucracy to pulling it and forcing it to adapt and to change to circumstances it wasn't ostensibly designed to address. And you'll see most innovation takes place tactically, operationally, because the wars took long, so long, eventually became more strategic. But by that point, um, you've, you've lost the uh, patience of the American people. So usually we invade a country, we're very confident in our abilities, but not very wise. And then we get mugged by reality, and there's this crossover point where our confidence begins to dip, but understanding has increased. And by that point, we finally figure out what's required to prevail, but now we've squandered the goodwill and time that we actually needed at the outset. You know, and this is a perennial problem. So you know, as we talk about great power competition, as we talk about China, Russia, and others, um, we need to really be honest with ourselves about the lessons from these last 20 years. Why were the original war plans for both countries inadequate to the problem sets you know why was it so hard to adapt what what prompted adaptation you know violence is a great is a great instigator of institutional change (laughs) your new book front toward enemy war veterans and the home front is different than your previous works Mm -hmm. why'd you write this book well i think like a lot of veterans we we all go through this experience of coming home and kind of processing and our experiences and um, reflecting on that time but also sort of adapting to this America that has changed a bit while we've been away. And uh, I think as I have now, I've now mobilized four times at one year with the State Department, so I've had five opportunities to come home from these conflicts, and they haven't always been easy. Uh, I'm, and I'm very desirous to understand why am I reacting the way I am? Why am I seeing things from a different perspective? And I feel like civilian society often, when it talks about war veterans, they're seen as heroes, victims, or psychopaths. It's like one of those three categories. And most veterans can relate to one or, or all three of those categories to some degree. Um, but it's a very simplistic view. And I think the field of psychology has, has done great work to help veterans think about and process their experiences. But as a, as a um, discipline, they tend to focus overly on the experience of violence and the veteran's experience. Because like anything, people focus on those things that are most different from their civilian life. And, you know, recurring exposure to violence is one of those things. But the vast majority of these books are written by people who've never served in the military, never been to Iraq and Afghanistan. And many, many of them are, are written by women, which is fine. But I think there's some unique things to men. And they may get this correct, frankly. But I'm just, I have just noticed as a man, there are certain aspects of the coming home from war experience that aren't often discussed. And I thought, you know what? 
Um, you know, I had a real difficult time coming home from a war zone. I thought I'm the thing I try to do is I, I read deeply about stuff that, that interests me or concerns me. So I started reading a lot, a lot of books about other vets coming home from war. That's a good segue because on the first page you say there's a veritable cottage industry on books, reports, conferences, medical studies, and clinical efforts that have erupted uh, or have erupted since the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq began focusing on helping veterans deal with the trauma of war service. Can you discuss the fact that there seems to be this huge body of literature by people who had served there? In a way, you really didn't see for, say, the Second World War. Uh, you know, you, I mean, yeah, you have the Eugene Sledges of the world. You have the memoirs of senior officers from World War II. But it doesn't seem like you had as, as many people writing about it back then as you do with these, you know, the, the uh, Army captains or uh, the, the E-6s, whoever, writing about Iraq and Afghanistan. What, why is that? Well, I think just the longevity of the conflict. You've now got more than one generation to have served in these conflicts, you know, uh, just the longevity of it. And, you know, when it comes to these kind of books, uh, war memoirs, uh, because the wars have gone on for so long, you have the genre of the multi-memoir veteran now, which is atypical. Most memoirs are written after a war is finished. It's the one memoir. It's their one tour. It's the one war. This generation has two wars. It has multiple tours in these two wars. Um, you have memoirs now. You actually, I think, if, if I recall correctly, there's like at least 14 veterans who've written two or three memoirs of their experiences, and many have written single volume memoirs. But there are multiple tours in the in the in the memoir, mm-hmm. like uh, Nate Nate Fix One Bullet Away. Perfect example. Yeah, right. That right. was probably I don't know. Is that arguably the the best war memoir that came out of Iraq Afghanistan? I don't know. I mean, it's the early, one of the earlier yeah. ones. There have been many others. It seems like he inspired a lot of other officers to write. Well, whenever you're a trailblazer, I think that definitely opens the door to other people's sort of imaginations and what, what could happen. Yeah. I mean, there have been at least 168 Iraq-Afghan war memoirs that have come out since 9-11. Um, that's what I say in my book. Subsequent to the book coming out, I've probably found seven more that have come out. And... When you start to rack and stack them and you look at who writes and who doesn't write and how through who what, who writes these memoirs, how they contribute to our society, over-remembering certain themes of those conflicts, under-remembering others, and also recognizing, I think of the 168, I think there's maybe 150 distinct authors of the however many people served in Iraq Afghanistan, I don't know what the final numbers are, 2 million or whatever, over time, those 150 or so will be the voices that the next generation will have listened to when they think about what war is like, because they won't have those firsthand experiences. Mm-hmm. And so what, what is published? Um, so, Now, I don't want to say you're, you're just a veteran of the wars. That's, mm. that's, uh, that's not what I intend by this next question. But yeah, yeah. you bring, you're not writing simply as a veteran of those wars, you're bringing other aspects. What are the other aspects that you thought would help in writing this book? Yeah. Um, well, I think the mere fact, I think the fact that I had had five tours altogether, I had, I, I had multiple opportunities to kind of reflect on my own experiences. And there's a little touch of wisdom, uh, and I'd like to think, at least from my own experiences. But I also look at it as a political scientist. You know, I have a PhD in uh, American politics, and I look at it from an institutional perspective, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, how 
um, the maturation of our formal military institutions, the shift to an all-voluntary military in 73, the large standing militaries we now have since World War II, which was a new phenomenon in the history of our republic. Um, I also look at as a, <coughs> excuse me, as a social scientist, you know, the, the uh, rights revolution for women and minorities in our country and how that has affected things. But I also look at it as uh, this Department of Defense official who had to sort of think through, um, you know, at a, a certain level, uh, strategy and how you, how you link strategy to structure and how you link it to resourcing and the challenges that come from that. Um, and then you know, also I'm an officer and I have to think through not only my own, how I would handle these things, but how I would think about my members of my unit, my fellow sailors and what they might have to go through. So I try to have a multiple lenses, but then I really drink deeply from the prior wisdom of other veterans. This is not a new challenge. It's a new, different kinds of conflict. Every war has its own unique challenges based on the conflict they're involved in. But just reading deeply about other vets as they talk about their experiences from World War I to Vietnam, others, you know, that, that's very, very helpful. And I, part of my goal is to sort of broaden people's understanding of the issue and maybe look up these other authors too. Now, this is a really timely book because as of this interview in, I think, was it, December 22nd, 2021, we've now been out of both Iraq and Afghanistan, out of Afghanistan for what, about six, uh, so for several months now. Um, are there fundamental differences between the two, the veterans of the two wars when they are coming home? Yeah, one of the things I talk about in the book is um, there's a tendency to try to uh, summarize what an Iraq or an Afghan veteran is like. And you can probably do some thinking to that end, and I'll probably talk about that in a second. But every veteran come, who comes home, in many ways, their experiences is based upon what stage of the conflict were they in, did they serve in. So if you were an Iraq invasion veteran in 03, and that say that's your only tour, what, is your, what do you like when you come home? Well, you've got a great feeling of accomplishment and that you've removed the Iraqi government and Saddam Hussein. Right. You also had a war experience where there were very few rules of engagement. There was very little bureaucracy, but also very little understanding of Iraqi culture, Islam, tribes, developmental challenges, the, you know, the electrical network of, the, of Sadr City. Now, these are things you did not know or need to know. And much of your conflict was more conventional than fighting insurgency. So what kind of veteran is that per, compared to, say, a surge vet? 06, 07, 08, probably more knowledgeable of counterinsurgency now, uh, has a greater understanding of Islam, tribes, actually has relationships with locals. You know, oh, this that was the police chief of Haditha I used to work with. You know, he used to call me Captain Mike or whatever. You see these sort of, and you see these different experiences reflected in the memoirs that have come out, right? And the same is true for later conflicts. So I think for Iraq veterans, I think there's some commonalities between both conflicts. Initial expressions of victory and success were then undercut by growing insurgencies. Then there was this process of wisdom and sort of muddling through because our conceptual understanding of the problem set wasn't very rich or deep or integrated. Then we start to figure out what's required in terms of resourcing, but also institutional design. And we start to implement this. But by this point, the clock is starting to run out. American patience is wearing thin. There are political folks on the home front who are getting support by campaigning against the wars now versus being supportive mm -hmm. of them. Um, and then you sort of get to a point where it's good enough to go. We turn it over to the Iraqis. And then, um, of course, it all fell apart for various reasons. 
And a similar thing happened in Afghanistan. And so I think um, the Afghan people, by and large, were overwhelmingly grateful for having gotten rid of the Taliban. Um, and you saw that. I mean, the Afghans were very transparent with me and willing to talk. If you served in Iraq, and let's say you served in Anbar province, you had the Sunni Arab heartland, everyone there, not everyone, but you know, many people had fought against us as part of the insurgency. There were barriers to trust and understanding. And then as the Anbar awakening took place, as one of my colleagues once said, we went from being enemy number one to them to maybe enemy number three, hmm. you know, behind Al-Qaeda in Iraq, behind the Shia slash Iran as they saw it. And then maybe we were three. And there was this reluctance to, to be open and share with us. And the Afghans had never known stability. They had never known an operating nation state. The Iraqis had. They had known stability, albeit one that was very harsh and unjust with the Saddam Hussein regime. Um, and also just the Iraqis were better educated, more worldly. Um, they had a base of revenue that they wouldn't fall below just because of oil. And the Afghans didn't have that. You know, um, The Afghans were very... Um, very uh, hardworking, I found, and very honest people, but very poor, and, and they were survivors. They're very pragmatic. Um, so, and then I think also just another key difference is just the violence. You know, the violence in Iraq was so intense for so long, and I'm not surprised that change happened first in that conflict versus Afghanistan. Now, I remember that in 1991, there was a parade for the returning Gulf War vets. No. Of course, the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. We're 30 years on for this now, and very abbreviated conflict. I remember growing up and going to parades, probably two or three times a year in my hometown, mm -hmm. where you would see not only World War II vets, you would see World War I vets. This is mm -hmm. 1970s, so these people were their 80s. Mm -hmm. You talk about the quote, thank you for your service, which I, I'm not sure if it actually, I, I remember G. Gordon Liddy often saying that on his radio show back in the 90s, mm. and I'm not sure if that's where it was really popularized or not. Mm. But can, can you tell us about this, uh, this appreciation, whether through parades or this thank you for your service comment, and how that's seen by returning vets from these wars? Because we haven't had that for, obviously, Afghanistan or Iraq, at least this Iraq war. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that one aspect of it, as you know, uh, grew out of the how Vietnam veterans, many of them were treated um, when they came home, often were called baby killers or spit at. Again, this is prior to my, my birth. <laughs> so, but I, just from what you hear from mm -hmm. other Vietnam vets talk about, I think there was an aspect of it. But, you know, can you imagine thanking a World War II veteran for his service when he came home? Yes, we can all imagine that but it would seem a bit unusual to our ears. It would almost be like, wasn't, wouldn't that have been your obligation as an American, you know, to have served your country when it needed you the most? And I think the thank you for your service is linked to this shift to an all-volunteer military. There, I think I call it the understanding in the book. I believe there was this kind of this understanding in 73 where the military, which had gone through this conflict in Vietnam, which was very unpopular eventually on the home front, where their, their members were poorly treated, uh, and they had to deal with conscripts who didn't want to go there, although they didn't really use reservists in Vietnam, which is sort of interesting. Um, it's an interesting omission. Hmm. Um, that the military was grateful that it no longer had to deal with people who didn't want to be there by shifting to an all-volunteer military. Everyone wanted to be there. And in return, the military said, look, just treat us as an institution respectfully, support our policies, 
you know, yes, we'll have debates, but you know, sort of this it was almost like this this peace between the civilian society and the institution of the military. Call it the understanding. Uh, and in return, the military is grateful it didn't have to have people who didn't want to be there, and the civilian population was grateful and that they weren't compelled to have to serve if they didn't want to. And this understanding, this agreement, worked pretty well because it was never seriously stressed. In the Iraq-Afghan conflicts, it's where it started to get stressed, but mostly by those who served in uniform. You know, when you've done two or three or four or five tours or however long that they are, at some point you're wondering as you come home and you're walking at the local shopping mall, you know, you're walking perhaps on the D.C. mall here and, and you're sort of looking at other military-aged males your own age whose lives have moved on in life. You know, they've gotten married and had kids while you've been overseas. They've got that advancement in their civilian career and you're still in, in uniform or you're a reservist and you're still trying to, maybe you're still trying to find a job. There's a little bit of resentment that starts to creep into your mind, a little bit of bitterness because um, you're kind of like, hey, brother, when are you going to, you know, tap in and do your part? But that obligation has been severed by the all-volunteer military, in my, in my opinion. Um, and so what you see is you see these, there's these, these little resentments that happen on, in the civilian life and in the military life because of this bargain, I would argue. On the military side, there's sort of, in some, in some ways, thank you for your service has kind of become a punchline. Uh, they're so tired of hearing it because many veterans who've served in these wars do not see it, uh, they see it as an obligation as a responsibility, not as one of, uh, oh, I, you know, it's what I chose to do, and it's all, well, it's all, all choices are equal. And so you'll see that, I use this example, there's this t-shirt you'll see for sale on some veteran websites where it's talking about the sheepdog. He says, I am the sheepdog. This is the veteran talking, right? I am the sheepdog. I protect the flock from the wolf that threatens it. You do not like me during a time of peace. You do not want me near you, something to this effect. But when the wolf threatens, I stand up and I do what's required. And if you look, take that apart, a sheepdog, of course, has more in common um, genetically with the wolf than he does with the sheep he's protecting, right? And this, this tone of bitterness that's there, the idea that the sheep are not responsible for their own security. They receive security. They don't provide it. You know, they're, they're no longer obligated as one would have under a conscript service or a draft situation. And the resentment that that vet is sort of manifesting is interesting, right? But on the flip side, you have this view, and I use this uh, op-ed written by this journalist, I can't remember his name, but kind of talking about, he was talking about how all these veterans who served in Iraq, you know, the war is immoral, and they're all volunteers for the service, so they made immoral decisions to join, knowing they would join. And he keeps referring to them as the other. So the military becomes the other, because... You know, as the military bases in the Northeast closed, as the military, because it became all volunteer, all volunteer military became much more profoundly Southern mm -hmm. and Midwestern. There are parts of our country that, and there are people within those parts who kind of see the military as this other, this other thing. And so this, this other versus, and then there's bitterness, these kind of things coexist. And, and they've sort of, because of the multiple war zone tours, it's kind of been a stressor. And so on the civilian side, I think there's some civilians who resent the veteran who has had these military experiences because they see the accolades, they see the benefits, and they actually try to delegitimize it sometimes. That's a really good point. You know, because I'm just a few years older than you, and I, I think remember... you're significantly older. Oh, thanks. Actually. <laughs> you have more gray hair. <laughs> actually, Fair. not anymore. <laughs> those, are, those are freedom follicles. <laughs> uh, but our, and just growing up, I remember my the, the the block I grew up on. All of our fathers were World War II vets, I'm, and I was thinking about this this morning as I was preparing for the interview. Mm -hmm. 
and there was that commonality. There was no other yes. that, you, that you could imagine. <clears throat> I want to go back to the World War II generation for just a moment, and you write this. As approximately 16.5 million service members were discharged or separated from the armed forces of the United States after the defeat of German and Japanese militaries in World War II, they were issued a small diamond-shaped patch in either khaki or olive drab with a golden eagle sewn into it, into it with its wings outstretched held against a gold circle. It was issued to every service member upon their honorable discharge from the service, and military personnel were instructed to affix it to their uniform or similar lapel button on civilian clothing. It was called the Honorable Discharge Emblem and the Honorable Service Lapel uh, Button. And I have to thank you, Dan, because as I was reading this, it clicked. Uh, so when my, my dad was, you, you dedicate the, the book to your grandfather, who was 91st Infantry Division, was I, it? Yeah, yeah. He was a <clears throat> signalman, though. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, my father was with the 4th Infantry Division during World mm. War II, and he had this, he died when I was a kid. So, but he had this box of items. I mean, and he had patches from his, his, his own uniform from the 3rd Army, and et cetera. And he had some German uh, embroidered things as well that he, I'm mm -hmm. sure he took off some uniforms as they, as they did then. But there was this one that looked German that I said, geez, that, you know, that, that looks like something that you would have found out of, you know, Rommel's North African because mm -hmm. it, was, it was khaki and these gold. And when you were describing it and then I looked it up online and then I looked in my box, yeah. it was that. Yeah. It was actually, because it, it sort of looks, when you look at the, the yeah. Yeah, it sort of looks German. But uh, I don't remember people wearing that. Was that something that they, they wore immediately after? Did you ever find photos of veterans actually wearing that either, I guess, on their uniform or their civilian clothing after the war? Yes, uh, it's actually sewn in my grandfather's uniform, which really? we still have. Yeah, I, mean, I believe the understanding was it would clarify, because at the time you weren't allowed to wear civilian clothes if you were in the military. And people don't really remember that. Uh, and it was supposed to demonstrate to everyone, anyone who wondered that you were honorably discharged, you weren't AWOL, but I believe, is my understanding of it, it also entitled you to free, a free trip home from the discharge station hmm. by bus or rail or whatever. And that actually, I think, I think some of these transportation companies would count those things as sort of credit, and that way they could you know, get or compensated later. Um, but yeah, we have one sewn in my grandfather's uniform. I've seen some photos of it. It's not in every uniform, but again, mm -hmm. you have to have been discharged. And, um, and you know, the, the soldiers, sailors, Marines used to call it the ruptured duck. You know, a classic, cynical, bitter slash funny, you know, veteran humor. But yeah. You have a, a subchapter called the post-masculine male. Uh, can you talk about the changing gender roles out of these yeah. wars? Yeah, you know, I, as you compare the Vietnam generation to the generation of Iraq and Afghan vets, you know, one of the there are several profound changes, right? One is just the shift in our culture uh, to a post-industrial society. So moving from an industrial and somewhat agrarian society to a post-industrial society, which is to say moving from industry to more bits and bytes and computers, more sedentary. And that shift, you know, brings profound societal changes as well. You know, industrial societies, more focus on brawn more hierarchical. Um, the values tend to be more about scarcity, trying to get things, uh, and arguments, or arguments about sort of the, the percentage of what is seen as a fixed pie, how much are you going to get. And you have the shift to a post-industrial society, which emphasizes more your mental ability versus your physical brawn. It's more networked. It's flatter. 
There's a lot of other changes, more values education. And a lot of societies that sh went through this shift also tended to have a shift in women's uh, views on women's rights and the role of women in society. And so you, I think what you had, if, when you had um, a society where there were relatively fixed gender roles, um, each gender had rights and responsibilities within and then between. And these were somewhat rigid, often reinforced by laws, social mores, whatever. But then as these things shifted, as what was considered male gets redefined, what's considered female gets redefined, um, the culture still needs to assert a standard for what is male and female. Um, it's no, no small thing, for example, in the 70s that you start to see the prevalence of facial hair among men. It provides no other purpose other than to distinguish us from women in many ways. You know, you see essentially what the argument I've read essentially is society redefined the genders but went to the extremes. So men became ultra ripped. I mean, there's a reason Schwarzenegger took off in the 70s. You know, yeah. and women became, frankly, ultra voluptuous, but also toned, to use the term, <laughs> also ripped. And you see this, there's a sociologist, I don't remember his name, but he did a study of Superman in comic books. Hmm. And you think of the Superman of the 40s, looks like your husky grandpa. Tall, yeah. kind of husky. The word chiseled would not have been used. Yeah, other or, or even in the, the TV series, like, the George Reeve Yes, uh, char character. Right. Of, of the Superman. only thing you say yeah. was chiseled was probably his jawline. Yeah. Other than that, nothing else. Like, that's a you know that's a comfy Superman. Compare the Superman of today with Henry Cavill, or just even the comic books. How I mean, they're incredibly ripped, and this is kind of goes back to this view that so now that masculinity is no longer anchored to a somewhat clear definition, is now movable and sort of ill-defined or maybe you know, being un uh, undermined and redefined the standard becomes, you know, sort of on the spectrum. And the experience of a lot of war veterans, especially in small wars, is I, I would argue masculinity gets re, redefined overseas. There are, there, it serves a survival purpose. And, uh, and if you've done multiple tours, especially if you've been in small units, um, you get reacquainted with the, the sort of the aspects of masculinity that our hunter-gatherer ancestors would find familiar. And you come home to a society that has redefined that standard. That sees no real purpose in pursuing that standard because it doesn't have any manifest benefits as they see it. It creates this sort of disconnect for a lot of veterans. Mm -hmm. You know, they see uh, masculinity serve a viable, important like upper body strength, sort of important purpose, dragging someone behind cover in the middle of a firefight. You know, all the other sort of you know, quickness to aggression. These are things that. Um, are often associated with men, and they, you know, they provide they, their survival benefits. You know, and you come home and you're just kind of railing against how your Amazon order hasn't shown up, and you know the, the traffic is longer today, and you know, and someone's being passive aggressive to you, and indirect versus direct and aggressive. You know, these are just this is just another aspect because I tend again I think most psychologists tend to focus on the violence of the experience, which is appropriate. But we also adapt not just to violence, we adapt to insurgency as a type of warfare that has its own adaptations versus conventional war. We also adapt to the institution of the military, careerism, for example, and we adapt to living in developing countries which have their own sort of nuances. So, You're right. The famous World War II Marine veteran, E.B. Sledge, Eugene Sledge, Marine, uh, also puts it well, the only thing that kept you going was your faith in your buddies. 
do you see a transition at all or more similarities in these returning vets who, and whether or not they, they fought for their country or they fought for their buddies, or fought, for, for, fought for each other? Yeah, you know, if you go back to hunter-gatherer societies, usually we lived with people who are related to us. And uh, when we live with them, they provide a survival benefit. Um, they were our first line of defense. And then we'd have these extended kinship networks. And the thing about the military, as most of your listeners know very well, is you join, you're joining with a bunch of strangers. And the experience of training, the experience of combat, the experience of playing a vital role in your small unit. I am the machine gunner. I have to play my role in my squad as uh, with others who are riflemen or mortarmen or others. And you start to, and I talk about this in the book, you start to become kind of like a tribe again in our hunter-gatherer societies. And, uh, and that's reinforced you know, significantly when you're in combat and when you go to war zones, and especially when you're cohabitating. You know, usually we, the only time we live with people not related to us is when we marry someone. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the experience here at Naval Academy living in the barracks is another mm-hmm. example of that. But that goes back to this military experience. And because of that cohabitation, you start to see the words of brothers. Us, oh, my brother, you know. Uh, you see that word used more and more. Even when amongst female vets, you hear sisterhood is often used. And essentially what happens through the training and the, and the experiences overseas, you have essentially re-tribalized. You've, re, you've joined a tribe, but unlike other tribes, you're, they're actually not related to you. But you have the same visceral feelings. You know? And what happens is when you come home from war and you get out of the military, and unless you serve in, like, say, law enforcement or fire department or something like that where there's a similar level of sort of brotherhood, um, you feel like you've lost your tribe. You know, however, the, the mental models and instincts are still there. You still think like a group. You sort of, um, there's just certain ways of operating that, that most Americans who've not had to be in a tribe don't have to think like. And they, they don't think that way. And so this is a little sort of mental sort of legacy of service that continues on. You discuss video games in this. Uh, titles like Call of Duty, Resident Evil, Halo. Actually, I played Halo 2 on the ship. Uh, the pilots were really good at Halo 2. Oh, yeah, shocking. Good to know. Yeah, uh, I was like, I felt comfortable flying with them. I said, okay, they're it's funny. Hand, hand-eye coordination are pretty good on the video game, so <laughs> it must be good on an SH-60. He said, you said the uh, you write, the veteran is attracted to these types of games in large part because they are almost exclusively about combat, with little of the ambiguity of counterinsurgency operations. Can you discuss mm-hmm. a little more because this is the video games are more or less. Um, more common for Iraq and Afghanistan vets. I mean, right. certainly we, you yeah. know, we've, we've had video games for a long time, but the, the level of detail and the violence in these games is far different than you know, playing Pong when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I, I think these games, which are largely first-person shooter games, I sort of group, uh, group them under the category of uh, attrition escapism. You know, uh, most veterans... Are come up in a military that's very conventionally oriented is thinking about big, big nation-state wars. We grew up in a steady stream of World War II movies, a few Vietnam ones, but even the Vietnam ones are small unit action, mm-hmm. and they're shaping and clearing operations, right? There's no hold, build, and transition. You know, there's no movie called Key Leader Engagement. You know, with you know, the story of the, the one Iraq veteran has the longest confirmed KLE. No one would watch it, and it would never be made. Right? But these first-person shooter games for veterans, a lot of them play them downrange, so it continues, to, it continues to be camaraderie when they come home. 
it's, you know, as we say, you know, you go to war, but experiences will vary. <laughs> These first-person shooter games are the war they want, not the war they may have had. Why? Because um, it's, it's, it's as close as you can get to conventional warfare and insurgency is shaping and clearing operations. And most of these games are like World War II type or modern warfare, but they're special ops and it's all direct action. It's, it's a lot of very high-end sort of missions and stuff like this. But there's a difference with these video games as opposed to the reality that they were dealing with in that these have an end game to them. Correct. And it's also small unit action. There's no ambiguity about insurgency. Everyone who shoots at you is an enemy. There's very little sort of shoot, no shoot scenarios. Um, it's, it's small unit action, which is most of the experience of most Iraq Afghan vets. And uh, there's a conclusive end versus you know, wars that are prolonged and have no conclusive end. Oh, you've killed the bad guy, you move on to the next stage, you've rescued the hostage, whatever. Um, there's a direct action component to it. And it's special ops. You know, special ops has really grown in great prominence the last 20 years. Um, and you know, again, it's also a camaraderie aspect too. What's the show of shows? Yeah, the show of shows, uh, this is from the chapter called Militaria. And Militaria is this wonderful subculture of collecting military items. You know, it grows out of the very natural instinct of a war veteran to grab a piece of enemy gear when he's downrange. Um, which, is, which is not allowable anymore under law, I don't think. I mean, it's, uh, was it the, uh, the, uh, war, it's the War Memorials Act? I'm forgetting it now, but... Uh, in Vietnam, after Vietnam, I think they instituted a law where you could War Trophies Act. That's what it was. Uh, I'm not familiar. I guess you're. I mean, I don't know. But I, but I would argue that there isn't a lot to bring back from insurgencies. Right. There is the there are the manifestations of sovereignty, such as the Iraqi. Well, that government. goes that goes back to yep. what we were talking about about the the embroidered uh, yeah. insignia. Right. You know, where my father could maybe take something off of a uniform that he found from a right. German. Right. There's really nothing to distinguish somebody who's yes. p- part of an insurgency that you yes. could remove. Yeah. Right, exactly. So usually when it comes to collecting militaria, when it comes to the Iraq-Afghan wars, it's Iraqi emblems of so- state sovereignty, you know, pictures of Saddam Hussein, a uniform, a, re- a Republican, or a guard. You know, I remember going to a show, they had a uh, Fallujah police uniform, so they claimed. So the show of shows is the nation's largest militaria collecting show in the country it's in louisville kentucky it's every year and it's up to 2000 or so tables of military items and it's the pinnacle of a subculture of collecting that has dozens and dozens of smaller shows there is a show up in gettysburg there's a show in the dc area at the uh, fire station at you know uh near fort belvoir um and what it is it began with vets coming home with stuff war bring backs but also grew out of the demobilization of our militaries and all the surplus gear that's then had been stockpiled but then is no longer required and so it ends up on the on the civilian market you know and veterans often repurpose what they bring back you know a a, a bayonet from a, a german soldier might become something you use on the farm a helmet a german helmet for example was used by many veterans who became uh, members of biker gangs which is why you still see it today although it's now been yeah. updated right um, hmm. And so they're repurposed, right? And that great overcoat that was re- great when you were, uh, you know, an Anzio perhaps or whatever. Now you just wear it, wear it when you're on the farm doing stuff. Um, and these, these the, I call these things the talismans of testosterone, right? Because if you have brought something back from the, the war and you took this from the enemy, you've imposed your will on him, and you've taken something from him, 
And amongst other veterans and amongst many men, having this sort of talisman of testosterone and this subtle art of male peacocking is what I call it, of who's on top and who's cooler or who, who's better. The war veteran has this physical emblem, this manifestation of his courage. And, and it, it goes on from there. So, And then the, the focus of the show is, uh, the, the chapter is kind of what is collected because what is collected is only what endures from the war. So things from conventional wars are more collected than things from insurgencies, you know. And the German war, uh, Wehrmacht and others are collected more than the Japanese military, most because the Nazi party was trying to take over the state of Germany, which did, and tried to mesh itself with state sovereignty symbols. And they have, uh, there's this phrase called a metals complex in Germany. You know, they have a lot more manifestations of this versus the Japanese, every, you know, they couldn't make brass statues. They needed that for their own war fighting effort. Uh, and so the same thing is like, okay, what do you bring back from Afghanistan and Iraq? And I talk about that in the, in the chapter. You know, what is it? Well, it could be a Taliban night letter. Could be maybe a Taliban commander stamp. Um, could be a turban. It's more cultural things versus weapons of war and stuff like that. Hmm. You know, and then the things that are brought back from Afghanistan are kind of outward expressions of sovereignty of past invaders. So it's British rifles. It's Soviet bric-a-brac. You know, there's not much Taliban stuff. Maybe it's a Taliban flag you could get. You know, and this what this does though is over time it contributes to our culture over-remembering certain conflicts and narratives and under-remembering others. At the show of shows, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything from the Vietnam conflict, let alone the Viet Cong mm. themselves. And that just contributes, let alone our local indigenous partners, our allies ostensibly. There's nothing from them. Yeah, it just doesn't resonate with our culture. Stolen Valor, is this a new phenomenon and why, why exactly do people lie about that kind of military service? Yeah, in that chapter, I, I wrote about um, the history of U.S. military medals from the founding of the Republic till today. And stolen valor claims, which is essentially someone falsely claiming to have served in uniform, or perhaps they served in uniform and they, they embellish their record. Um, those claims have changed as our military institutionalized over time. So, for example, other than the Order of Military Merit, the famous Purple Heart it wasn't called that at the time that Washington created. We had no military medals on an individual level except for large hockey puck discs that were given to commanders that were gold or silver. Well, medals, the Medal of Honor, I mean, yes. if you look at the proliferation, especially during the, from the Civil War to the Spanish-American War shortly mm -hmm. after, right. that was almost a standard medal in some ways. Yes. it was There There were only two medals, the Medal of Honor for the Navy and, the, and the, for the Army that Lincoln created during the Civil War, and there were really no medals of great substance until World War I. And, however, false claims still took place. So what, what could you get if you fought for the Union in the Civil War? If you didn't get a Medal of Honor, what would you get? Well, you get the the eternal gratitude of your country, but you could also file for a pension, right? And this is how uh, we would link uh, the extending of welfare benefits mm -hmm. to veterans through sacrifice. Um, and so I have an example in the book from 1879, you know, approximately 4,000 so-called veterans petitioned the federal government for a pension, claiming to have served in the Union Army, but only 30% of the claims were legitimate. Right? And then you see when World War I happens, you see this real proliferation of, uh, of medals of valor. Right? So we actually revisited the Congressional Medal of Honor. We established the standard we have today for it. We actually took back approximately 911 medals of honor 
during World War One for having been erroneously awarded for people that were things that were other than, like for example, Clara Barton got the Medal of Honor. Hmm. Not in the military, not in uniform. Just a small example. Not to just, you know, distract sure. from her efforts, but this is an example. And so you see in World War One, you see that this distinguished service crosses are created. You see the silver star, not as we see it today, but it was a small silver star created. You have all these things start to be created, and thus you start to see stolen valor claims. Oh, some guys jumping on a stage, festooned in these medals they didn't earn. And, you know, it's really linked to the classic, all the foibles of human nature. You know, people are assert claims for romance, for money, prestige, a sense of belonging. Some are just psychopaths. Some use it for criminal purposes. But I think a lot of it also is tied to this changing view of, of gender in our society, that this is one of the few remaining things that one can assert, especially amongst uh, uh, men, to sort of get some sort of, sort of dominance or some sort of respect, respect and prestige. What do you want readers to take away from your latest book? Yeah. I want them to understand that, you know, um, we all serve in these wars in a sociological, philosophical, historical, literary, cultural, and political context that also shapes and informs how we view our experiences. And we're creatures of these, of these facts. And that we're far more, it's more and more about uh, not seeing ourselves as victims, which I think is the dominant perspective. Oh, you, you were sold a lie, or you, you know, oh, you poor guy, you know, this kind of this sort of pitiness. It's like, no, look, we are the natural leaders of our generation. We have served in these conflicts, many of us repeatedly. Um, it's time to you know, serve our country again and to understand that these feelings you have, these quiet conversations you have with other veterans that don't seem to pique the interests of civilian society or never commented by civilian society are legitimate. And I'm hoping that from this book, they can hang those conversations they've had on an intellectual framework to understand it, to contextualize it, to realize why they constantly have these fun debates with their other fellow vets about zombie movies. You know, why they bond over Call of Duty. You know, why they sort of have this visceral reaction to certain things in society, whether it's weakness or what have you. Why they're drawn to certain memoirs. And these are all very natural reactions to their experiences. And they're creatures of the time they grew up in, the time they served. And, um, and, you know, just to see how we come back from wars and see it's not just about your war experience. It's also how you come back and change your own society when you return. Our guest has been Dr. Dan Green. His latest book is Front Toward Enemy, War, Veterans, and the Home Front. Dan, uh, thanks for coming by. And I don't say this lightly, and I will say this publicly. Out of my 22 years of reserve duty, one of the two most impressive officers I have ever dealt with. You're one of the two. Um, what you have done, what you know, and what you can convey to people uh, is incredible. And thanks for doing everything that you do. Uh, it's, it, I'm proud to call you friend, uh, but you're a hell of an officer. And thanks. Thanks. I hope people find the book useful as they think through their own experiences, and I hope it um, helps them uh, figure out the right path forward for them. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us again on Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave feedback on wherever, you le uh, wherever you're listening to this, on iTunes or wherever. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.